Hello, and welcome to another edition of Problematic Women, a show that showcases strong conservative women, current events, and the hypocrisy of the feminist left. My name is Kelsey Harkness. I am a senior news producer and reporter here with The Daily Signal. And I'm Bree Payton, staff writer at The Federalist and friend of The Daily Signal. You may have noticed that we are in a different studio, a different room today, um, and we're doing that because we're switching up the format and we're trying new things. And uh, let us know what you think about it and if you like it and if there's any feedback that y'all have, things we should do differently. Yes, let us we're, know. We're recording in this radio studio because we are testing out turning the show into a podcast in addition to the Facebook Live. So we would love to hear your feedback on that. We already miss our studio, but this is a little fun, the idea of turning it into a <laughs> podcast. So let us know what you think. Um, but Bree, let's jump right into it because a lot happened this week, which leads us directly into our first segment, which we call That Happened, a segment where we talk about some of the more ridiculous and often hypocritical news stories of the week, particularly relating to women. So the first one I want to bring up is uh, this so-called feminist writer, female writer in the in. Marie Claire publishes an article article called Why Conservative Women Defend Sexist Men. And inside that article, she answered this question somehow without interviewing a single conservative woman. And let me read a little portion of it so you have an idea what exactly she said. For the women in Trump's orbit today, whether Sanders, Conway, Melania, or Ivanka, their presence helps to assuage the notion uh, of Trump is a raving misogynist. At least that's the hope. In return, they enjoy incredibly successful careers and high profiles at the expense of their dignity. In reality, though, aligning with the misogynist men is no safeguard. Look at women at Fox News who say they were harassed and abused by Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly, despite playing along with conservative talking points and mocking the very feminists who worked so hard to pass policies that would eventually help them. I'm sure patriarchal headpats are nice, as are successful careers where you can rise the ranks more easily because you're willing to throw other women under the bus to do it. But remember, misogynists believe that all women are lesser than even the ones who defend them. One day, they'll turn on those women, too. So, Brie, I had a lot of <laughs> thoughts on this that I shared on Twitter earlier today. But the most ridiculous part is, is she is um, accusing conservatives— like ourselves, of throwing other women under the bus to basically make more money in their careers. All the while, she's making money off of an article she's writing for Marie Claire, I assume getting paid to do so, by throwing conservative women under the bus. Yeah. There's a lot of bus throwing uh, that's going on here on both sides of the aisle. I personally, um, I think that this article is really just a perfect example of what you and I talk about all the time, which is that feminists don't understand when someone disagrees with like a specific liberal talking point that they have. And I think one of the examples that she brought up uh, in this article is the issue of birth control. Um, you know, and the fact that a lot of conservative women have a hard time with supporting subsidized birth control that employers are mandated to provide to their employees, right? And that's something that uh, liberal women talk about a lot as, oh, conservative women are throwing other women under the bus by, you know, blocking their access to birth control. When if you zoom out and look at the whole issue, I mean, there's other women who oppose this too, like the little sisters of the poor, right? Those nuns are women also, and they don't don't want to be forced um, 
to have to provide drugs that they think are abortifacients, right, and that violate their religious beliefs. So, you know, I think so often um, you see this play out time and time again, and this is such a perfect example of her being completely tone deaf and not understanding the position that other women are coming from. And also, I think in particular, um, with the sexual abuse allegations and the whole Roger Ailes thing and the different things that she brings up, I think it's extremely apparent that there are creepy dudes everywhere, right? It's not really a political issue as much, much as it's like, we are sinful human beings and this is what it means to live in a fallen world. And it's unfortunate and we should be combating it and fighting against it wherever we see it, um, regardless of where it pops up. I just find it so ironic that she writes an article called Why Conservative Women Defend Sexist Men and didn't talk to a single conservative <laughs> for her article. Yeah. I mean, and this is the problem. So I don't know if you saw, but today uh, Teen Vogue announced that they are ending their uh, paper publication and switching only to online. And people were saying this is the downfall of Teen Vogue. Um and I think it's quite frankly because of content like this that they're suffering because they are not speaking to all women. They are speaking to far left liberal women whose views um, do not align with conservative women, not only don't align, but are, they're constantly offending conservative women. And I really think if uh, Marie Claire keeps this up, they are um, going to be following right in Teen Vogue's footsteps. So we'll have to see what happens there. Uh, but I, I know a lot of conservative women found that that article, I mean, stupid and deeply offensive. Yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> Speaking of reporters, we should talk about the fact that a New York Times reporter revealed that she made monthly donations to Planned Parenthood. Um, and in the article talking about, uh, she penned actually uh, a book in which she was talking about her experiences as a reporter um, and about life in between the times when she wasn't reporting. And she said that she would write out a check every single month instead of just doing like an online donations because she wanted to sign the check because it was a signature of a citizen, which is, I think, I kind of laughed at that. I thought it was kind of funny. So um, her name is Linda Greenhouse. She's a former Supreme Court reporter, no less, for the New York Times. And while she was at the New York Times, she covered at least one case, but I believe multiple cases, where Planned Parenthood was involved. Um, it was in like a hundred yeah. like pro-choice uh, issues that were brought before the Supreme Court. She covered that a hundred times under her byline. Um, so, I mean, obviously very clear bias. This person is very biased one way or another. Um, and I don't I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about like what it means to be a reporter in the time that we live in and what it means to be objective and if that's even attainable. And I don't know that it's necessarily a cardinal sin for a New York Times reporter who's covering the Supreme Court to also make plan donations to Planned Parenthood like I think if she was transparent about it then that would have made it a whole different thing you know what I mean but like at the end of the day like reporters are all people and I think if the election taught us anything it's that reporters come with their own biases as much as they don't want to admit it and so maybe just being more transparent about that is helpful I agree with you and that's why I actually am fine telling people I'm a conservative journalist because I think more journalists should wear their biases on their sleeves I think you can still do reporting with integrity and report on both sides but it's if you have strong opinions about an issue which she clearly did in the right. case of Planned Parenthood then you 
I believe as a journalist have an obligation uh, to make those biases known. Um, so I, 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 I don't, I mean, I, I think it's just another example of um, why conservatives don't trust places like the New York Times to be fair and report on the pro-life side because the woman who's doing the reporting on it is writing checks. And, and this isn't the first time that this sort of thing has happened. I mean, we've covered this over at The Federalist like two years ago when uh, Planned Parenthood literally was handing out awards for journalistic excellence called the Maggie Awards after their eugenist and eugenicist uh, and racist founder, Margaret Sanger, and they were giving out awards to reporters that they thought did a really good job um, of covering, you know, news. And they gave them out to BuzzFeed reporters who totally ignored all of the videos that came out revealing that Planned Parenthood was harvesting organs from infants and selling them. Um, and not even on the black market, right? Like they were just selling them to uh, uh, sample procurement companies and making money off of that. Um, so, you know, I think that's another very clear example of, you know, reporters having a explicit bias and then being rewarded by the very entity that they're supposed to be covering or not covering uh in that case and speaking of racist and eugenicists and planned parenthood <laughs> pp black action planned, par- planned, planned parenthood, parenthood black, black action action tweeted out which is a subsidiary of planned parenthood um, their Twitter handle tweeted out that black women should it's safer for black women to have an abortion in America than to carry their child to term and deliver it because of the high uh, mortality rates among black women in hospitals, which is a very true statistic. It's very real. It's very unfortunate and is systemic of a lot of issues and a lot of problems in this country that are plaguing the black community. Um, but I mean, suggesting that, oh, you should just get an abortion instead is really ridiculous and tone deaf and maybe you can talk a little bit more about why that is well again just to follow up on that their follow-up tweet said between 1998 and 2015 16.1 million women access abortion care 108 died between 2011 and 13 black women accounted for 43.5 deaths of every 100,000 live births so the reason that they were tweeting about this, it was on Halloween and using the hashtag scary stats. And I think the my big question here is what is the intention behind this tweet? Are you are you encouraging black women to get abortions rather than carry uh, their their pregnancies to term? And if so, why? Why do you want more yeah. abortions, particularly Particu- in the black community? Exactly. Um, in Which York- is already disproportionately. I mean, I think it's like they represent something like 32 percent of all abortions or 23 percent of all abortions in this country. And in, in 2013, there were more black babies aborted in New York City than they were born. That's a scary stat. Yeah, it's really (laughs) scary. And I mean, it's not an accident either. Planned Parenthood's history is steeped in racism. Margaret Singer gave speeches to the KKK and was paid by them. um, And they had her come back again because the women loved her so much and she repeatedly would on would say things in letters like oh don't let them know that you know we're actually trying to target and kill black lives. So I I mean one, the statistics are really alarming and scary uh, for black women and the survival rate of black babies is I think it's scary. irresponsible to tweet that out without providing some explanation of uh, the reasons uh, yeah. for those statistics, which are much more complicated than what is perceived in that tweet. And I actually think it's disgusting to kind of politicize these um, 
I mean, these deaths of women. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah, exactly. I think you're exactly right. Um, well, moving on to our, motherhood. Our, our last That Happened segment for today is about motherhood. And this was a great article written in the Washington uh, excuse me, the Wall Street Journal about how uh, liberals, particularly liberal women, were triggered by science supporting um, women staying home for the first three years of motherhood. It was called The Politicization of Motherhood, if you're curious to read it. And what um, it was written by James Tarantano for the journal. And he's writing about uh, this new book. Uh, called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And the idea behind this um, is that, you know, according to research in psychology, neuroscience, uh, mothers are biologically necessary for babies um, and not only for the obvious reasons of pregnancy and birth. I'm reading from the article now. Uh, Babies are much more neurologically fragile than we ever understood. Um, And uh, basically the, the whole idea is that Children are babies are better off with the mothers physically staying home and being with them for the first three years of their lives. It is better for their uh, emotional development. And um, just to add another layer to what this article talks about is is apparently um, a lot of liberal women and liberal media. And I say liberal media. I mean, that includes um, NPR and, you know, what what is considered mainstream media. Um, they didn't want to talk about this new this new book because it was very inconvenient to their narrative that, you know, women can and should have it all. They can have kids and still work full time. Um, but conservatives, I guess, found this convenient to their worldview and their perspective that women are very important to a child's development. And from what I sense, you and I fall somewhere in between <laughs> on this and this idea that mothers have to stay home for the first first three years when a baby is born. What are you, what are your thoughts, Bray? Okay, so I think a lot of the psychology surrounding attachment parenting, which is the idea that you know babies learn how to regulate themselves emotionally, as you were reading from this, and so they need every time they cry, they need their mom to comfort them um, in order to teach them how to emotionally regulate themselves. I think a lot of that is just kind of BS if we're being honest with each other. I mean, you know, growing up, I'm the oldest of five. So I watched and helped raise four younger siblings. Um, And, you know, if a baby, because sometimes babies just scream, right? Like they're teething and they're just screaming. So she would just stick us in a crib like in our rooms and close the door and walk away and then come back like an hour later, you know? And Sometimes you just have to, babies just have to learn to cry it out. And I think it's fine to just like leave them and then come back later. And and I think if a child is two or three, I don't think that they need their mom to be there immediately to comfort them. Like, I, I don't know. I think that a lot of, a lot of the discussion around the attachment parenting thing, I think can just kind of encourage helicopter parenting and make it even more difficult for Um, that natural separation that happens. And also separation anxiety is like a thing that kids go through. There's a period of time when they're around like three or four years old where kids, every time they don't see their mom in the room, they'll just start crying and screaming uncontrollably. And they have to learn that, okay, my mom's going to come back. Like she's not going to leave forever. Um, And they have to learn to do that. So I don't know. I think that this can be kind of prolonging 
that process. Um, so from what I gather, Brie, you are a science denier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay, you know, I'm sure that the science behind all of this is very solid, and I'm sure that, you know, they're probably right. I just think that, you know, life life is hard and it's tough. And the sooner you learn that lesson, like the better off you're going to be. And I think that not everything is going to happen to perfectly cater around your needs and, you know, your brain's perfect development. I mean, I think that's why I fall somewhere in between because I actually do think the science behind uh, this article is really interesting. I personally want to read the whole book and learn more about it, but I also think it's unrealistic to ask women um, to stay home for the entire first three years of uh, of their child's lives. If you want to have a career, that, that's, that's very difficult to leave your career for three years instead of three months. Um, and, I mean, you know, if, if the left actually buys into this, then what are they going to ask for, maternity leave for three years? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that's, they do. That's what's happened in several other countries, particularly France. Yeah, and, and I just don't think, um, I mean... We work to produce something. If you're not producing something, um, you know, yeah. for three years, that's that's a lot. Of, that's a, that's a lot of money. That's um, going to be going going down the drain. Well, it's also <laughs> just like if you if you just like aren't there participating and keeping your foot in the door and continually working and doing stuff, you're going to become irrelevant in that workplace and in that field. Right. I mean, I remember my mom, I was helping her redo her resume somewhat recently and she was like, Oh, here's the resume that I had from like 1987 or whatever. And it was printed out on that paper with holes on the sides. And she, in one section of her resume, she literally just like described herself and like the activities that she enjoys participating in. And she's like, yeah, I'm young. Like I'm fit. I'm like ready to travel. You know, like uh, I enjoy playing tennis. I enjoy cooking and I'm like mom why is this on your resume and she was like no that's the way that resumes were back then you know if you're a woman this is how you wrote your resume and I just remember feeling like wow I never and my mom you know loved staying at home and so she didn't care but for me personally I was like wow I never want to be in that position where I'm like handing my daughter my resume that's printed out on paper with holes on the sides, you know, I mean, and just it's scary thinking about what, what if something happened to my dad, you know, and my mom had to work. I mean, she can't take a resume like that to go get a job. It's difficult. It's a difficult thing. Well, statistically speaking, women are behind in leadership positions. They don't hold as many positions at the top. And I think leaving the workplace for prolonged periods of time is part of that. And so uh, if, if we constantly are fighting this battle to get more women in leadership positions, I don't think telling women that you need to stay home for three years is going to help solve that. But we have a lot more to get into today. Um, I want to... You went to Detroit. <laughs> I did. I had a very busy week. I first went to Missouri and then went straight to Detroit for the Women's Convention, which um, was a conference organized by the leaders of the Women's March. Uh, the, the the Women's March that happened in January is basically... They call themselves a Women's March, but it was really an anti-Trump march. But I went to this whole convention there they hosted where they were talking about the policies that they support and talking about the future of their movement. And we want to to play a short clip if you're listening on podcast you'll be be able to hear it we're going to play a short clip um, of a segment where i asked some of the attendees whether or not they think this conference is inclusive of conservative women 
Did you guys follow from the beginning at the um, Women's March where pro-life groups tried to sign on as sponsors and they weren't allowed to? I actually wasn't aware of that, no. Well, who was it? The New Wave Pro-Life Feminists? That's true, and they've had a lot of work done since the Women's March. I know firsthand from both Tamika and from Carmen Perez. The issue of abortion is very clearly front and center at the Women's Convention in Detroit this weekend. Not one of the panels reflected the perspectives of pro-life women. But what surprised us is that many of the attendees were actually critical of that decision. Yeah, but that was definitely something that I highly disagree with. It's not a very welcoming space for women who feel conservatively. After the Women's March was announced last November, I actually uh, Facebook messaged multiple times uh, the co-founder of the March, Bob Land, asking, hey, can Students for Life, we represent the majority of women in this country who are pro-life, majority of our generation are pro-life, can we co-sponsor? And we never got a reply, and then we found out in December Planned Parenthood was like the platinum sponsor. Do you think that the pro-life women's perspective is reflected in this conference this weekend? Um, that's a great question. I, I can't say that it is. I also haven't looked for it. That's also my own personal bias, to be honest. I am noticing that this is uh, the women who have shown up and the panels we've attended are progressive. Um, um, so. so do you think that this improvement to include more a point of view, yes. Do you think there's ever room for a potential middle ground, maybe um, in the conversation surrounding late-term abortions? No. I'm actually a pediatric surgery nurse, and I see kids with horrible genetic conditions every day, and it's not a decision that these people make lightly. It's probably a horrible decision for them to make, but to then shame them and guilt them for having to make that decision, I just think is awful. Pro-choice politically, but I am pro-life in my personal life. So there's a lot of different distinctions that I don't think are being made when it comes to actually being inclusive to a lot of people. We're making a lot of headway in, towards being inclusive to people of color, people with disabilities, um, women of all, uh, women all over the gender spectrum, but we're still struggling to make sure that people who um, do feel conservatively and hold more traditional Republican beliefs are welcome here. I think they I think they don't feel welcome here and they feel ignored and silenced. Your opinions matter. Your your personal agenda matters. And yeah, we want to know what you're thinking and what you would like to see done. It's not a dictatorship. Seeing all the all the uh, the pro-life protesters outside, um, it really made me understand that there is there's not a bridge between the two positions yet. Um, and so hopefully all of us can be more open about how we hear each other's positions as opposed to being on the attack and, um, and find a way to have both of our opinions be equal and, uh, and equally important. Potentially, you know, inviting more, like, conservative people as well might help, um, but, you know, I feel like maybe that's, like, something that they can work on for next year. If given the opportunity, we'd love to have a conversation here uh, and to be able to speak and talk about why being pro-life is actually pro-woman. Unfortunately, I don't think that's something that's realistic because if you look around, every sign that's lit up is sponsored by Planned Parenthood. So they're the corporation behind this, putting this on, you know, making sure that this is paid for. And we all know what Planned Parenthood's about, abortion no matter what. So I clearly had a very fun weekend in Detroit. 
what I found most interesting is that there's a big disconnect between what you hear on stage from the speakers, which are literally, they're literally calling to impeach Trump. They're standing up, cheering for abortion on their feet, screaming about how excited they are about the concept of, of abortion. But then when I talked to women on the ground, the attendees, they were actually more open-minded than I expected, not necessarily in their policy positions, but they're open-minded to hearing the conservative perspective. They actually looked at me like I was this foreign alien, and they were, but they were curious about what my opinions were. So my big question that I have for you after attending this conference and hearing that the attendees are open to maybe having uh, the conservative perspective reflected in uh, the conference over the weekend is, is this something conservative women should be fighting for to be a part of it, to be on the panels? Should they be attending? Or is this a lost cause that has just gone so far to the left that conservatives can't associate themselves with it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, to be to be honest, if the Women's March invited me specifically to come and speak and offer a different perspective, I would go and I would do it. I think that it's important. I think it's important for us to have conversations from both sides of the aisle. And I think that there's just fewer and fewer spaces where that's happening um, and fewer and fewer spaces where people can talk to one another in a way that's not combative and aggressive. And, you know, I do honestly the whole, you know, the term feminist, I mean, I considered myself a feminist until probably a year or so ago. And, you know, it's because at the root of it, being a feminist is supposed to mean that men and women should have equal rights and equal protections under the law, right? But that's not really what it's become anymore. And it's interesting to see which conservatives totally reject that label and which ones try to reform it. So, I, I mean, if they were to be more open-minded and invite us, I think that we should try. I'm with you. I would show up. I did show up. I didn't get invited to speak, but I did <laughs> show up. My biggest takeaway, I think, is that it would be a mistake for conservatives and conservative women to ignore the momentum behind this Women's March movement because it's a movement. It's not going away. And I think if if we don't create our own momentum for conservative women, encouraging them to speak up, we're going to lose a lot of young women in college who just uh, that's all they're aware getting. of this other perspective yeah. on on feminism mm-hmm. um, that, you know, a lot of conservative women, you know, are for empowerment, are for getting women in these leadership positions, are for women running for public office. But they believe in different policies. They believe different policies are, are good for women. Uh, for example, they believe that being pro-life is pro-women because you are saving little little girls. Um and the last thing I want to say before on the on the convention over the weekend before we move on is um, so the first thing you see when you walked into that convention was a huge table spread set up for women with disabilities. And oh, that's I, really nice. I really loved that. And yeah. I think that um, that should be at every conservative and liberal conference. But um, I'm sure conservative conferences provide these types of services. But it was um, they made it a central 
point. And so um, I really think it was wonderful to see that audience catered to. They also provided a lactation room and they provided childcare. Oh, so hey. this was a very family friendly com- conference. And I think conservatives are the pro family party. Um, and so I think we should think about providing these services as well. I think that that's a great point. <laughs> so our next segment is real or fake news. And this is a game we play where I am going to read a few headlines and Brie is going to guess whether they are real or fake. If you're tuning in on Facebook Live, we encourage you to uh, to play along, comment below and see if you can beat Brie. So, um, so our first headline is Snoop Dogg poses over Trump corpse draped in the United States flag. Real or fake? I'm going to say that's real. This is real. It's a story from. Oh, yeah. Had... Ding that bell. I, I had got to incorporate that right. our yeah. new bell. <laughs> <laughs> we got a little excited about that before the show. Uh, so Snoop Dogg teased his new album called Make America Crip Again. Very clever. This is from The Daily Wire. And on its cover, there's a dead body laying on a slab covered with a flag. Wow. Uh, now, at least you'd be stuck wondering who that body is. A giant toe has Trump written in big block letters in black Sharpie. Okay, so that's a real headline. That's actually happening in our world. Story number two, Republicans are trying to pass a tax plan that everybody hates. Real or fake? Uh, real. That's from Slate. <laughs> That's real. And um, it's just a really silly article because I just got back, as I mentioned earlier, from Missouri talking to small business owners. I talked to five different decently successful small business owners, but these are small business owners where a few dollars makes a difference. And uh, they said tax reform would be life changing for them, as did their employees who I talked to. One of them was a woman who runs a cleaning service company. So it's I have to say that's actually it's that's a real story, but it's fake news because plenty of people are behind Donald Trump's push for tax reform. Classic slate. <laughs> All right. Story number three. The new iPhone X offers 50 different gender options in autocorrect. Real or fake? I'm going to guess that's real. Although, why is it limited to 50? I feel like that's very binary and exclusionary of them. <laughs> 50 isn't enough pronouns yeah no it's not i'm gonna say real that's actually fake we made that one up but just wait whatever the next iphone is i guess it'd be like 11 or like i don't know xyz (laughs) that will that will happen um but i thought it was a little funny for coming up with that one all right next headline uh a professor says offensive monuments cause psychological harm i'm gonna that's totally real (laughs) totally real Yay! Uh, This is real. So a professor suggested that colleges conduct routine landscape impact assessments to mitigate the psychological harm that discriminatory public spaces impose on African Americans by renaming them after people of color. This is from Campus Reform. You can go on their website to check out more. Um, The school involved here, University of Tennessee. 
not a small school. So that is happening on a college campus near you. Crazy town. Our last real or fake headline, a restaurant under fire for using pre and post transition photos of Caitlyn Jenner for bathroom signs. So for the boys room, there's a Uh, pre. It's Bruce Jenner. I'm going to say that that's that's real. Yay! You did pretty well today. You were four for five. Um, this is I came real. to play. Came to play. You did. You showed up. Uh, <laughs> the owner of a Texas eatery is being called transphobic for photos, photos of Caitlyn Jenner covering the bathroom doors in his establishment, according to the New York Daily News. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> We'll leave it at that. Well, good job today. All um, right. Well, now it's time. I think we should have a drum roll to crown the problematic woman of the week. This week, <laughs> it's Betsy DeVos, who's the Secretary of Education. Uh, for Halloween, she dressed up as Miss Frizzle <laughs> of the Magic School Bus. And some liberals were upset and triggered by that and lashed out and... So one woman, Gabriella Paella, oh, it's spelled kind of like the food. She <laughs> says, I don't know who she is. I probably should know who she is, but whatever. She says, Betsy DeVos, how dare you besmirch the good name and honor of Miss Frizzle? Four exclamation points. Another person, can't tell if it's a woman or a man from the Twitter Abbey. Stanley Arnaud said, Betsy DeVos costuming as Miss Frizzle is the closest she'll ever B, to being a real educator. All right. Can we calm down? Uh, Like, this is so extra. It's crazy town. So there's actually a congressman, a Democrat congressman from Wisconsin, who tweeted, unlike Betsy DeVos, Ms. Frizzle supported science in the classroom and actually had a background in education. So first off, this costume was hilarious. She did a really good job with it. She, in, in execution, she had the orange wig, um, her skirt had like space planets on it, it which a, it, is it totally awesome. a Miss Frizzle outfit. It really bothers me how political of a figure Betsy DeVos is. Um, and this is a perfect example where people on the left are assuming bad intentions of people on the right. So instead of just disagreeing on on policies on how to fix a solution, uh, how to fix a problem, um, Democrats are accusing Uh, figures like Betsy DeVos of actually having bad intentions. And the fact is, Betsy DeVos has devoted a lot of her life and a lot of her personal money to uh, helping education and supporting school choice options for students who are stuck in failing school districts. And, um, And she's just demonized and made fun of by the media. And this is yet another example. It's like we can't even have fun with Halloween anymore. Yeah. Lauren says, our fabulous producer who's sitting behind the glass in the other side of the booth, she says we should explain who Miss Frizzle is. So Miss Frizzle, Magic School Bus, for those of you guys who maybe are a little bit too young or maybe are a little bit too old to have like caught the Magic School Bus uh, craze, it was a fun animated show during the 90s in which there was a teacher woman named Miss Frizzle with red hair and fun outfits. And her outfits would always match like whatever was going on uh, that she was going to talk about and teach in class that day. So if it was space planets, then they would probably take a trip to outer space and things like that. So that's the deal with the magic. And the bus would turn into like a vehicle to take them to different magical lands. I can't believe we just had to explain that, Lauren. 
Yeah, well, well Miss Frizzle was a very important part of yeah. my childhood. I've seen every episode <laughs> of Magic School Bus. The best, we should probably do like a power ranking of the episodes, but I think the best one is when they go inside Ralphie's body and they shrink inside <laughs> the, the tiny bus. Is that no, the no, Ralphie, the like really annoying student with the backwards hat. Oh. He gets sick one day and so they shrink in the bus and go inside his body and enter in his bloodstream and they follow like the circulatory system as well as the, the way your immune system fights off infections. Okay, so before we end with a video that we're excited to show you, we did get a question from someone named Thomas who asked, what are your opinions on Michelle Obama's comments on men? Michelle Obama, according to Fox News, said men are entitled, self-righteous, because women protect them too much. So it's women's fault that men are entitled and self-righteous, I guess. Bray, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that that statement is weird I think it's really obvious that our society is failing men for a lot of different reasons I mean they're not performing as well little boys don't perform as well academically and as a result fewer and fewer men are going to college and earning degrees Uh, and in a lot of urban cities women out earn men by like 50% or or 50% of women out earn men or something like that which isn't I mean it's not a bad thing that women are out earning men but I think it just goes to show you that it's it's rough out there for little boys and our society is not serving them well and i think as a result they're lashing out in ways that are are participating in ways that are not productive to our society if that makes sense i think a better example instead of like continuing to talk down at them which is what her comments seem to imply i think a better way of handling that would be to encourage and empower them yeah and the idea that men are too entitled I mean I don't have any problem with men working hard and if they work for it feeling entitled for what they work for I think women can have that same attitude um, and I'm honestly kind of sick of having to always put people in these different gender boxes or you know gender identity boxes I mean let's let's talk about policies that can actually help society help boys help girls and I think a starting point there is to talk about the family structure and school choice let me tell you something I'm sick of having to defend men all the time like seriously seriously I'm so sick well when like liberal or feminist women say things about men like oh they're so awful or that you know they do that's what I'm saying and then we have to be like no actually not all men are the worst thing in the world right like I'm sick of having to say that because it's like why are why is the conversation even at that point or at that level well thank you Thomas for that question we definitely encourage you all to leave questions if you're watching in our Facebook live if you're tuning in for our first ever podcast I hope you stayed with us um, this was sort of a trial run so um, we'll see what happens from here but we appreciate you all tuning in before we toss off to a video of Sarah Huckabee Sanders explaining the tax system to journalists by describing what how, how it would work if a bunch of journalists walk into a bar and purchase beer. I'm going to um, sign off and tell you, you can follow my work on Twitter at Kelsey J. Harkness and Brie. You can follow me on Twitter at Brie underscore Peyton and read all of my work and the work of my fabulous colleagues over at thefederalist.com. 
So now I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna turn it away to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who herself we all know is a problematic woman, speaking out on tax reform, which certainly was a big issue this week. So thank you all for tuning in, and here's Sarah. This story has been floating around the internet for a while, and it's important to keep in mind that the numbers are not exact, and I'm also not encouraging any drinking. So file that away. It's mostly for my parents. <laughs> But I think you'll enjoy it. Suppose that every day 10 people, for our purposes, we'll say reporters, go out for beer and the bill for all 10 comes to $100. If these 10 reporters paid their tab every night the way we pay our taxes, it would go something like this. The first four, the poorest, would pay nothing. The fifth would pay $1. The sixth would pay $3. The seventh would pay $7. The eighth would pay $12. The ninth would pay $18. The tenth, the richest, would pay $59. So that's what they decided to do. The ten reporters drank in the bar every day and seemed quite happy with the arrangement until one day the bar, honor, bar owner threw them a curveball. Since you're all such good customers, he said, I'm going to reduce the cost of your daily beer by $20. Drinks for the ten reporters would now cost just $80. The group still wanted to pay their bill the way we pay our taxes, so the first four were unaffected. They would still drink for free. But what about the other six? How could they divide the $20 windfall so that everyone would get their fair share? These are the reporters after all, so they're concerned with fairness. They realize that $20 divided by six is $3.33. But if they subtracted that from everybody's share, then the fifth reporter and the sixth reporter, which, eat, which would each end up being paid to drink beer. So the bar owner suggested that it would be fair to reduce each man's bill by a higher percentage the poorer he was. By doing that, he explained, they'd continue following the principle of the tax system they'd been using. So he proceeded to work out the amounts he suggested that each should pay now. And so the fifth reporter, like the first four, now paid nothing. He got a 100% saving. The sixth now paid $2 instead of $3, a 33% saving. The seventh now paid $5 instead of 7 a 28% saving. The eighth now paid $9 instead of 12, a 25% saving. The ninth now paid 14 instead of 18, which was a 22% saving. And the 10th now paid $49 instead of $59, a 16% saving. So each of the six was better off than before, and the first four continued to drink for free. But once outside the bar, the reporters began to compare their savings. I only got a dollar out of the $20 saving, declared the sixth reporter. And she pointed to the tenth reporter. He got ten. Yes, that's right, exclaimed the fifth reporter. I only saved a dollar, too. It's unfair that he received ten times more benefit than me. That's true, shouted the seventh reporter. Why should he get ten dollars back when I only got two? The wealthy gets all the breaks. Wait a minute, yelled the first four reporters in unison. We didn't get anything at all. This new tax system exploits the poor. The nine reporters yelled at the tenth and made him feel bad. So the next night, the tenth man didn't show up for drinks, and the nine sat down and had their beers without him. But when it came time to pay the bill, they discovered something important. They no longer had enough money between them all to even cover half of the bill. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how our tax system works. The people who already paid the highest taxes will naturally benefit from a tax reduction, but not the largest percent benefit. Taxing them too much, attack them, and they might start drinking overseas where the atmosphere is somewhat friendlier. This is a silly story, of course, but it illustrates some very important points. Our tax cuts and reforms will create a fairer system that works better for everyone. 
and it will make our country the friendliest in the world for American families trying to build a better life for themselves and their children and for American companies sinking a competitive edge. And I'll be happy to get that story to everybody so that you can get those numbers later.